from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Market jitters, mixed messages on the trade war, fueling market volatility. U.S. retail, though, to the rescue. Walmart's earnings and consumer spending numbers soothing nerves. And Buffett's billion-dollar bet, Berkshire Hathaway, increasing its stake in Amazon. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Once again, to first move, guys, after the volatility that we saw in yesterday's session, the choppiness, quite frankly, and the losses in U.S. markets, all I can really promise you with any confidence, I think, today is volatility matched with plenty of analysis. Now, speaking of volatility, take a look at what we're seeing right now for U.S. futures. I can tell you they've been changing more often than the weather this morning. We were higher, then we were lower, and now we are higher again. It's a carrot and stick approach. Let's call it that, the stick. Overnight, Beijing threatening fresh tariff retaliation if those U.S. 10% tariffs eventually hit. Not what President Trump was hoping for, I assume, when he asked President Xi for a personal meeting on Twitter last night. But now here's the carrot. There's a statement from the Chinese foreign ministry saying they hope a deal can be reached through, quote, equal footed dialogue. I'll call that let's meet halfway. We shall see. I tell you what, it follows the worst day of the year for U.S. stocks, some 3% losses across the board amid all that chatter about the potential recessionary warning signs coming from the bond market. The bottom line here is, though, one day does not make a trend. And at some point, we need to see weaker data to simply justify the flight into bonds, the safety of bonds, and, of course, a pullback in stocks here. Now, I would agree the manufacturing sector in the United States has a recession-like feel, but it's just a small chunk of the economy, the consumer, the services sector is also key. And there was little to fear from the earnings from retail giant Walmart this morning. Solid U.S. spending and an upgrade to U.S. forecasts as well, helping support sentiment that came as the U.S. retail sales data hit much better than expected in these numbers too. Another sigh of relief, therefore, from investors. The final point I'd make here is U.S. stocks do tend to rise after we get recessionary warnings from the bond market. Typically, of course, you have a central bank that's cutting rates. And finally, Janet Yellen, even yesterday, saying she doesn't think we're looking at a U.S. recession right now for the U.S. economy. Let's get to the drivers, because there is plenty, as always, to discuss. John Defterius joins me now. John, whether we look at the trade headlines, whether we look at the moves that we're seeing, the fall in energy prices, the nervousness in stocks right now, um, you name it investors are dealing with a great deal. Yeah, this is a market on tenterhooks, uh, Julia, subject to every economic report, either on the downside or the upside, and also the geopolitical shocks that you were outlining in your opening comments there. Uh, I would say this is a market like a yo-yo, not that children use them anymore, but we're getting swung all over the place. I'm glad you singled out the retail sales, though. They were much better than expected at 0.7%. Think about it. 24 hours ago, we were talking about the retail sales collapsing in China. So a very different story and why we see the market gyrating 
gyrations uh, playing out here. Uh, it was interesting, the interpretation of the statement that was coming out of Beijing, uh, whether to meet uh, the U.S. halfway or not. I have the official line here, and it's interesting. Uh, this is from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokeswoman in Beijing saying, we hope the U.S. can work in concert with China. That is positive, of course. And there is dialogue. The two presidents are sharing phone calls and letters, according to the spokeswoman. But after we had this market lull, uh, Julia, in Asia and Europe, we got the jolt that China was going to retaliate uh, with the measures that are left over from the Trump administration that do go into effect in September. So is uh, President Xi going to dig in his heels for the long haul? Or is this the beginning of going back to the bargaining table and trying to get a deal before the December 15th deadline and the second round of tariffs that will come into place? It's a big question. It was interesting. The Australian central bank governor said today this may be a self-fulfilling downturn taking place. Janet Yellen doesn't have these major concerns, but he does. And that market was down 2.8 percent. Australia is cutting interest rates. So the U.S. is holding up, but the rest of the world doesn't look very bright at this stage. And that is such a key question, because even if the United States itself in the interim can avoid recession, can it avoid the weakness that we're seeing in most other places around the world? And I think that's key. It's also key, of course, for the Federal Reserve here in the central bank. The president lambasting Jay Powell once again and saying he rose rates too much. He should have cut them sooner right now. We've got Jackson Hole next week, which brings together mm. the central bankers of the world's largest economies. We may or we may not see Jay Powell speak. The question is, in the face of market pressure, of presidential pressure, what can and what should and what does he say here? You know, it's, it's interesting, Julie. I remember following Paul Volcker in Washington, uh, the tough job that Alan Greenspan had, Janet Yellen, of course, and those who have followed her. Jay Powell, though, has a very difficult position because very unusual you have a president giving him a verbal lashing every time there's problems in the financial markets. That is exactly what happened. And how does he nuance the fact that the U.S. consumer remains strong, uh, as uh, evidenced by the retail sales? We'll hear more from the industrial sector later in the day. Uh, but the rest of the world is looking very tired. Again, 24 hours ago, we were talking about the collapse in industrial production in China. We're talking about the golden decade in Germany drawing to a close. Uh, that is Europe's largest economy. The top five economies in the world look very weak. And then uncertainties are going to reemerge again with Brexit. Hong Kong still in play, and we have the tensions in the Middle East. So these are factors that could tip us into much slower growth outside the United States. Yeah, and can the, uh, can the United States remain resilient? John Defteris, thank you so much for that. Very much in line with what we're seeing here. And let's get to some good news. Walmart earnings beating estimates in the second quarter. Uh, Pre-market, we're seeing the stock up some 6% right now. They also raised their forecast. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, it's a bigger question over whether this is a border sign about the strength of the U.S. consumer right now or a specific story for Walmart. But whichever way you look at it, these were solid numbers. Yeah, Julia, I think it's actually both. Uh, Walmart's obviously mm. got the scale, which many retailers don't. They are, uh, in their words, extremely well-placed, for example, to mitigate the impact of the tariffs, which gives them uh, a lot of strength here. They said uh, on those tariffs that they've already uh, reviewed those lists that came out two days ago from the Commerce Department. They do see more of their goods on them than the previous lists, uh, but they are well-placed to mitigate them, and they're going to look at price rises on an item-by-item -item basis. But this was uh, a very strong set of results, Julia, driven uh, not so much by the number of transactions 
from customers going up, but by higher ticket prices. Those were up 2.2% in the U.S. Each customer spending more. E-commerce, another really good story, up 37% in the U.S. That continues to be driven partly by the expansion of grocery, which is an area where Walmart really does have the power to lead. They've now expanded a pickup to 2,700 locations uh, nationwide. 1,100 do uh, one-day delivery. So this is really an area, in the words of their e-commerce chief, where they have a unique strength. So a lot of good stories there. And they updated their guidance for the full year, which in this climate, uh, I think, is, is, is a really strong move. Walmart does not want to be the kind of company that over-promises and under-delivers. So they have to be pretty confident in that, even with the overhang from the tariffs. Yeah, you make such a great point. Even given the uncertainty, they're still willing to do that, though admittedly many analysts were expecting this. Can we compare and contrast what they're seeing in the United States and the strength that they're seeing there with the international? Because they were always expected to outperform in the United States. What are they seeing internationally here, Claire? Yes, I mean, the, the size of the Walmart U.S. business, it dwarfs every other part of their business uh, massively. It's almost like the contribution of Amazon Web Services to Amazon's overall uh, top and bottom line, frankly. The, uh, the, the operating income from the U.S. is 77% uh, overall. And they, in terms of the guidance, while they are revising up overall, they are revising down slightly uh, the sales internationally. But one element, Julia, uh, that I thought was really interesting was that even uh, with what's going on in the trade war and the, the potential for that to, to exacerbate the slowdown, that we're seeing in China. Walmart says uh, it saw uh, comparable sales, same-store sales in China, uh, up 3% overall. So I think they continue to show some strength. I think nine out of their 10 international markets saw same-store same store sales growth. So this is, uh, despite the fact that it isn't as strong as the US, still, still fairly strong. Yeah, fantastic. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that analysis. On now to the bellwether, arguably, of the Chinese retail sector. Alibaba's revenues and profits beating estimates this morning, too. Paula Monica has more details on this. You have to feel a bit sorry for Alibaba. The share price has been pummeled this year as a result of the trade war. But these earnings are pretty solid once again. Yeah, I think it shows that for now, Julia, the Chinese consumer is still spending particularly the more affluent Chinese uh, consumers. And this follows on the heels of JD.com, Alibaba's big online retail rival, reporting solid results earlier in the week. So that's great news, I think, for those two companies and the state of China retail, following on what Claire just said with Walmart as well. Walmart actually has a stake in JD. It shows that consumers broadly are maybe a little bit healthier than we thought. But with Alibaba, you also have to factor in their massive cloud business. They are trying to go to toe-to-toe with Amazon and Microsoft, and the strong revenue gains there, I think, suggest that Alibaba Cloud is doing a good job of attracting smaller and mid-sized businesses to set up shop on Alibaba so that they can sell their goods around the world. And that's great news for, obviously, Alibaba and all of these mid-sized retailers that want to do business in China as well as the U.S. Absolutely. The further diversification of the business, too, which also helps. Paula Monica, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Beijing warns it's, quote, prepared for the worst when it comes to handling the unrest in Hong Kong. Paramilitary units are at the border with the territory, armed with riot shields and batons, apparently ready to move in if necessary after weeks of violent protests. CNN's Matt Rivers is in Shenzhen, China, which is, of course, adjacent to Hong Kong. Listen in. 
Well, we're here along the mainland China-Hong Kong border, right across the water there, it would be Hong Kong. And yet on this side of the border, there has been an influx of several thousand new temporary residents that really has been uh, generating quite a stir. I'm talking, of course, about several thousand members of the People's Armed Police. That would be China's paramilitary force that have been temporarily deployed, as CNN has seen firsthand. They've been deployed to a sports stadium uh, just a few miles away from where we are right now. We saw uh, armed personnel carriers. We saw them setting up shop for probably a stay that would last several weeks with things like mess tents and cots that have been set up. And we also saw paramilitary members walking around holding riot shields, holding batons and helmets, the kind of equipment that you might imagine they would carry should the decision be made to send military forces across this border and into Hong Kong. That would be, of course, the decision that Beijing could legally make under its own law should it decide that the protests that have been going on in Hong Kong for so long need to be quelled by the military. Now, we need to be very clear when we're talking about this. There is zero sign zero sign of an imminent deployment of those forces. And that's for good reason, because Beijing, according to just about every expert we've spoken to, does not want to send forces into Hong Kong because, simply put, the consequences would be disastrous, economic, political, diplomatic, even military consequences for Beijing that, so far, they have made the calculation that sending forces in to quell the protests, it's simply not worth it at this point. That did not stop the Chinese ambassador to the United Kingdom, though, at a press conference today reiterating the often stated stance of the Chinese government that the government has the right to do that, to send military forces in, uh, and they are prepared to do that should it get to a worst case scenario. Now, all of this is happening as President Donald Trump, well, he's linking the ongoing trade dispute between China and the United States to what is going on in Hong Kong. He has tweeted uh, recently uh, in the last day or so saying that uh, Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong situation should be humanely resolved by Beijing before a trade deal can be struck. And then he also said that he believes his good friend, President Xi of China could step in and humanely solve the situation if he were to choose to do so. The president doing what he often does there, linking the ongoing trade dispute with another issue. We've seen him do it with North Korea and the trade war before, and now we're seeing him do it with Hong Kong. The ambassador for China to the United Kingdom uh, was asked a question about that, and he simply responded by saying that China would never abandon its own principles about Hong Kong for the sake of a trade deal. So China, they're clearly not willing to publicly link what's going on in Hong Kong to a trade deal as President Trump is doing. Uh, but whether the president of the United States weighs in or not, this situation on the Hong Kong-China uh, border, the mainland China border with Hong Kong, it is ongoing. There are troops that have been deployed not far from where we are. Uh, and where this all goes from here, even if a deployment isn't imminent, well, that's the big question that no one really has an answer to yet. I'm Matt Rivers, CNN, on the mainland China-Hong Kong border. Yeah, just one of the big questions hanging over markets right now. Let's move on. Britain's opposition leader plans to call a vote of no confidence in the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Jeremy Corbyn says he wants to stop Prime Minister Johnson's government from leading the UK to a no-deal Brexit. Corbyn didn't say when the vote would happen. Parliament returns from its summer break in September. I call that cutting it fine. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on the first move, but still to come, retail therapy. The US consumer goes for spend over save in June, but is the summer splurge enough to restore confidence in the US economy? And 
not your normal inversion. The bond market signals are about the distorted yield curve and bond buying rather than the real recession risk, says Mohamed El Erian of Allianz. We'll be discussing later in the show. Welcome back to First Move Live from the New York Stock Exchange here on Thursday's morning session as we count down to the market open. Volatility, the name of the game here for U.S. stock market futures. Futures fell earlier on after China threatened to retaliate if we see fresh U.S. tariffs applied. Then they turned around after China seemed to say that they wanted to meet the United States halfway on trade. Then we got strong U.S. retail sales data and then Walmart's earnings, of course, helping sentiment here too. What we're looking at right now is the financial sector in particular looking to bounce after we saw the financial sector for the S&P 500 yesterday falling into correction territory. What about the bond markets? Because that was the real focus, of course, in yesterday's trading session. We've got the U, the yield on the U.S. 10-year bond trading a little bit higher here. It's up to 1.58%. The 30-year bond yield as well, also off session lows. That hit record lows in yesterday's trading session. The question is, what is going on and what should we be listening to as we look at these signals? Let's get some context. Brian Railing is co-head of Global Fixed Income Strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. Brian, fantastic to have you with us. We were making the point yesterday on the show that if we look at the last five recessions, we've always seen this kind of signal coming from the bond market but we can also get that signal from the bond market and not see a recession 12 to 18 months or so later so how closely how important is the signal that we got yesterday admittedly just for one day well i think overall the inverted yield curve is very meaningful especially when it is sustained uh, or quite deep in terms of inversion and while a lot of the focus yesterday was on that 10-year versus the two-year i actually think uh, if you look at the three-month versus the 10-year, it's an even more important indicator, and that's actually been inverted uh, since May. So uh, there are definitely a lot of uh, flashing warning signs in the bond market, and, and those continue. You know, a lot of people would look at this and go, look, we now have $16 trillion worth of bonds around the world trading with negative yields. There's a lot going on. The global economy is slowing. When you look around the world, the safest place looks to be the U.S. bond market. And so just the technicals here of people buying U.S. bonds perhaps would create signals that might otherwise not have been there. Do you agree that's a fair point, given the, the broader distortions that we're seeing in bond markets around the world? I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, you know, inverted yield curves have preceded recessions uh, here now for almost 50 years. The last really false positive was uh, back in the 60s. And there's been a lot of different regimes uh, throughout those years. So there's always a reason why this time is different. And those reasons are valid. This time could be the one time that's different. But I sure wouldn't bet real strongly against history. I do think there are a lot of concerning signs in the bond market today about the longer bonds as well, the 30-year bonds, because we did see that bond yield hit an all-time low yesterday. How closely should we be watching this potentially too as a, a sort of indicator of further economic weakness to come? 
I think it's a great indicator of long-term growth expectations, right? I mean, if you have the 30-year around 2% uh, and inflation, uh, let's say it's even averages that it has lately a little under 2%, so 1.718 here in the U.S., I mean, your real yield there is extremely small. So people are willing uh, to buy those, lock up their money for long periods of time with the expectation of very little real return. So that's very indicative, I think, of expectations out there uh, that growth in the future could be challenged. So there are a lot of people that are looking at the situation here and saying, actually, the fundamentals don't reflect the, the weakness, the signal that the bond market is saying about future growth expectations. Is the market ahead of the fundamentals? And actually, if we, we see the data coming in, like today, for example, with stronger than expected retail sales, that we have to see some kind of correction in the bond market and perhaps those warning signals disappear again. It's possible, yes. I would definitely say the bond market is ahead of the data. Clearly, the data uh, that's coming in is not as bad as the bond market indicates uh, the future could be. But the really key thing for me to watch is, does this yield curve inversion reverse, right? Because even today, when we had strong retail sales, you did not see... Uh, you know, long bonds selling off more than than short term, right? So you didn't see any type of uh, reversal of the inversion. And so that tells me that the bond market is really looking past this near-term data, looking to global weakness, looking to uh, how the trade dispute may develop in the future and the impact it may have. And the bond market's not convinced things are going to turn around. Yeah, bond market investors are incredibly stubborn right now because you see the same thing on days when, when U.S. stock markets rally. We don't see a subsequent fall in bond prices and a pickup in yields here as you would expect in perhaps healthier times. And I use that, that word very carefully here. What can the Fed do? Because bond and market investors think the Federal Reserve is going to cut here. What's the probability that we do see the Federal Reserve enact significant cuts and we do get down to zero, perhaps even. Well, I think the bond market is saying the Fed needs to cut. I think uh, we're clearly going to get a cut in September. I think the key here is, like we said, that data, if the data starts to slow, then we'll see the Fed come in and probably uh, multiple cuts. And yes, if it really slows and it looks like we're going to move into recession, you know, moving down to zero is uh, probably almost a certainty. So uh, but I think what we have to see for the Fed to catch up with the bond market is we actually have to see uh, some of that data that comes in in real time start to turn a little bit. Alan Greenspan was quoted this week as saying, he wouldn't be surprised. There's no reason why we couldn't see negative rates in the United States the same way that we've seen in other countries around the world. What do you make of that? And what should investors be doing today? What should they keep an eye on in particular? Well, I definitely think that's possible. Uh, I would agree uh, with him. Um, you know, in the next recession, whenever it does come, uh, I think it's very likely, uh, it's almost a certainty we'll put in new all-time lows uh, in those, uh, in the 10-year. We're already putting in new time all-time lows in the 30-year. So to get close to zero or even negative is definitely a possibility, not a certainty. In terms of what investors should be doing, um, well, I think one, obviously, 
kind of you always diversify, uh, diversify your bets. Don't bet on any one particular outcome. But within fixed income, you want to be moving up in quality. So make sure you're buying better bonds um, and not really reaching for yield as is going to be uh, the temptation for investors with very low rates. Um, and I don't think you, you know, uh, move out of long-term bonds here either. Now, I'm surely you're not going to load up on them at these levels, uh, but, right. you know, keep that good profile because, you know, a 2% 30-year, uh, historically, obviously, it looks awful with all-time low rates, but if rates move down significantly, there can still be really good returns there, uh, and it's a good way to balance uh, the risks in the market because that's the type of uh, security that's going to do really well if we I do see it. more risk off. Yeah. Brian, fantastic to have you with us. Brian Relling there. The Market Open is next. Thank you. Stay with us. first move here at the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell for Thursday's session. U.S. stocks higher after what has been an overwhelming morning of news, and we're only just getting started. Let's call it a case of halfway hopes. China's foreign ministry says it hopes that the United States will meet them halfway on trade. We'll see about that. But for all the choppiness that we've seen in markets, I think always context here important. We're around 6 or 7% away from record highs. Before today's session, the S&P 500 was down only at, what, 1.5% over the past five trading sessions. So just bear that in mind. Yes, we've seen a lot of choppiness within that. Obviously, far bigger moves for individual stocks. But in aggregate for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq and the Dow here, just 7% away from record highs. We are seeing losses in Europe, however. UK stocks right now the weakest, down over 1%. Noises, of course, of a potential confidence vote in the new Prime Minister Boris Johnson, perhaps having an impact there in particular. Let's take a look at the global movers here this morning as well. Cisco under pressure as we kick off the session. The networking company lowering its guidance after a sharp slowdown in China, where sales dropped some 25% in the last quarter. They say Chinese customers are turning away from U.S. suppliers right now down some 7% in the session. What about GE as well? Also under pressure, a report by an independent investigator claims the industrial giant is hiding the extent of its financial problems. The man behind the report, Harry Markopoulos, make, made his name by calling out Bernie Madoff years before Madoff was convicted of fraud. Right now, that stock down 5% early on in the session. And what about Walmart as well? We've already discussed a couple of times on the show the U.S. retailer raising its forecast for sales in 2019 after the quarterly numbers jumped. Right now, that stock up some 6%. And what about over in Hong Kong? Just take a quick look at this. Tencent under some pressure. The Chinese gaming company warned of a difficult economic environment despite beating S with a 35% jump in profit. So a real flavor right now of what's going on in the retail sector. Let's bring it back, though, to the United States and focus on what we've seen this morning. Brian Nigel, a senior analyst covering retail and e-commerce at Oppenheimer, and he joins us now. Brian. Thanks for having me. Happy here. to have you here. Talk me through Walmart, because whichever way you slice and dice this, it looks like a solid earnings report coming from these guys. No, I totally agree. And I, look, I think the Walmart report was extraordinarily well-timed given all the concerns out there. Absolutely. So the key numbers, 2.8% comp in the U.S., 
which was a combination of continued better traffic as well as better ticket. And then the company raising its guidance slightly, raising its guidance for U.S. sales this year. Again, all these concerns out there, all these macro-related concerns. Walmart, the biggest retailer, very much a middle market type company, is, is basically saying with today's report, things are fine. You see, this is quite fascinating, the way that you posed that as well. The first thing, given all the uncertainty that we've now got over tariffs, hitting things like shoes and apparel, for example, that fine, a huge chunk has been delayed from September to December, but that they have the confidence to raise guidance here is interesting. To what extent is this a bellwether for the broader U.S. consumer retail sector here versus being a specific story about Walmart and the things they're doing with e-commerce and the business more broadly? Well, look, it's both. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, interesting and individual initiatives at Walmart, but given its sheer size, mm. given who it serves, it's also a bellwether. And frankly, as I, I look at a lot of retailers, um, my, I, my another colleague of mine covers Walmart closely, but I look at a lot of retailers. Walmart, for me, is the best barometer of the overall health of the U.S. consumer. So nothing in this report suggests to you, look, we're seeing weakness or deterioration in the U.S. consumer right now? Not at all. I mean, again, 2.8% comp. They did a 29 in Q1. And that number, again, for, you know, that's a big number given the sheer size of Walmart. How important was the decision to delay tariffs from September to December from the White House this week? For retail, I think it's a big deal. And, you know, we, if you look at the tariffs, and we've been studying this very closely, the tariffs have come to date have largely been non-consumer related. That last bucket, right. the $300 billion, much more consumer related. And the concern, like, so I spent a lot of time with Best Buy. You know, so I, just, I talked to the CEO, of, the CFO is of Best Buy. What they're basically saying is, look, we can manage through individual price adjustments here and there. But if you have all these price adjustments coming at once and coming ahead of the holiday season, that can be problematic for the consumer. And I think that was very, I think that was reflected in the comments yesterday from Macy's. Yes. You know, their CEO also said that the consumer at this point is not really prepared to take on these extra costs of tariffs. Did they give you any sense of what kind of price rises we would, we would have seen there? What kind of amount would have to be passed on of these tariffs directly to the consumer because they simply couldn't wear them or house them themselves, absorb them themselves? It's hard to say. I mean, generally speaking, what I've seen so far, we've been watching this closely as well, is that a 10% tariff means maybe 8% price hike. Okay, and, and with that, that extra two wow. percentage points is they're, 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 they're leveraging their supply chain. But again, the point, the point I've been making to my clients a lot is retail retail's a much smarter business today than it was five years ago than it was 10 years ago. These retailers, these high-quality companies really understand price and elasticity, where they can take price, where they can't take price. So they're looking at these, these increases and they're saying, okay, where can, where can we adjust our pricing so as to maintain our margins? Now, Another point I would make is 10 and 25 are two very different numbers. 10% has been manageable, 25 is much more difficult. Yeah, so you have to watch what you're doing as far as the, uh, the magnitude of these uh, tariffs is concerned. What about adjusting supply chains? Because the president's argument is, look, look, these tariffs are hurting China. They're having an impact on China because U.S. companies look at their supply chains and go, OK, how can I perhaps get out of China? Look at the Philippines, look at Vietnam, for example. What are you seeing from those that you speak to about, one, what they've done already or what they potentially could do to adjust their supply chains out of China? 
So it's a great question, and I, I follow a wide array of retailers. What I would say is every retailer I talk to is to some extent examining how they can get out of China. Now, for some, it's much easier than others because there's some there's products like you mentioned. We're talking about pre uh, shoes. I mean, shoes. It's it's actually it's a more complicated manufacturing process. That's more difficult to move. There are others where simply the manufacturer that these retailers have been working with that manufacturer is picking up, moving out of China to another country. I mean, China surely wants to stop them doing that and would offer them some kind of concession to say, you know, please don't go, we'll cut our prices, we'll perhaps help you wear the tariffs. Or are we not seeing that? Is there a negotiation going on here? See, that I have no idea. No. That's, 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 because that's, I'm just talking to the retailers, what they're talking about, their suppliers. I'm sure it's going on. Yeah. I have no idea, but I don't no. know. But it's going to be fascinating to see. Yes. It's also something that's upcoming, so perhaps it's part of the negotiation that we're seeing right now. But to sum up, the bottom line is, and my takeaway from this conversation is, we should remain confident in the strength of the U.S. consumer. The U.S. consumer is in good shape. And I look at, you know, look at what drives consumer spending. I'll, I'll say a couple things. Jobs. I mean, the U.S. economy, we're looking at the non-farm non, um, payroll report. The U.S. economy is at a, roughly 1.2 million jobs here in 2019. Unemployment's at 3.7%. Wages, as of the last report, are growing at 3.2%. Those are all really solid numbers. And also, what another thing I've seen, this is more touchy-feely in nature, but the U.S. consumer has turned much more hardened to noise. Yeah. And we've seen this. I mean, and I think it's probably the consumer and the population in general. But if the consumer doesn't react as much to noise. Now, there's a tipping point. That's we have to be careful that tail wagging the dog type phenomena that the market, the volatility, geopolitical. Bond market recession warnings, right. as you saw, splashed all over the headlines yesterday. These are important points for the consumer. That's right. You have to watch it. But right now, most consumers are saying, I'm employed. I'm getting paid more. There are jobs out there. I feel good. I feel good too. Thank you for this conversation. Nice Great to you. have you with us. Brian Nigel there, Managing Director and Senior Analyst for Retail at Oppenheimer. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But up next, how real is the risk of a U.S. recession? We'll discuss with Mohammed El Arian, Chief Economist at Allianz. To first move. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing in early trading here in the United States on Wall Street. We've tilted a little bit to the downside in the last 10-15 minutes or so. Keep an eye on the price action today. It's going to be interesting. We had mixed messages. Let's call it the carrot and the stick, as I said earlier, from China overnight. Beijing saying it will retaliate against any fresh U.S. tariffs, but also that it hopes to work in concert with the United States to settle their differences. Are you confused? Well, the good news is we have someone joining us now to explain away that confusion. Mohamed al and Chief Economic Advisor at Allianz. Always fantastic to have you on the show, sir. Let's talk about retail first and the U.S. consumer because I think if we're talking about recession risks in the United States, we have to hone in on services, on the U.S. consumer. Are you comforted, one, by the conversation I just had, I think you were listening, but, but also the data that we got today? Yes, I am. They point to a household sector that remains strong. And as you say, the consumer is the most important driver of economic growth. And that in turn speaks to the reality of a solid labor market. The U.S. continues to create monthly jobs above what you would expect this late in the cycle. And wages are going up by about 3%. So, yes, the household sector is fine. The business sector, which is much more exposed to the rest of the world, is facing a lot more headwinds. 
I mean, if you look at some of the manufacturing data in particular, as you said, business investment, then you can perhaps pull out recessionary senses here, warnings. As a proportion, though, of the economy, it's far smaller, but it's still a sign. Just, just take what we're seeing for those two pieces, specific pieces of the economy, and, and map that to the message that the bond market was, was sending, or some were worried about the bond market sending yesterday, particularly in the, the twos, tens with that yield curve inversion. Are we getting mixed signals here? Because it doesn't feel like the data matches with the bond market signals right now. You're absolutely right. Um, if you look at the economic data, they suggest a slowdown in the U.S., but nothing near a recession. And the slowdown comes from the business sector, but as you point out, it's simply not big enough to put us into recession. And it's not collapsing, it's just slowing down. But if you look at the inverted yield curve, um, that signals something else. The right signal comes from the economy. The yield curve signal is distorted by a couple of things. One, central bank policies, especially in Europe. When the European Central Bank has negative interest rates as its policy rate and tells it's going to go more negative and tells it's going to buy more bonds, that takes a whole interest rate structure down. And as you know, there's 16 billion, trillion, 16 trillion dollars of bonds trading at negative yields. So that's the first distortion. The second distortion is the fact that the U.S. outpaces Europe, and yet the bond markets are very interconnected, which means that more capital comes into the U.S. looking for returns, pushing interest rates in the U.S. down. So if once you adjust for these two distortions, the Signals coming out of the yield curve are of a slowdown, not of a recession. So I guess the, the counter to that would be, and to your point, the $16 trillion worth of bonds trading with negative yields for a reason, because we are seeing a global slowdown. There's concerns. There's the need for great stimulus around the world in order to keep the momentum going that we've got. Can the United States remain resilient, decoupled in, in the face of a broader global slowdown? Because I think that also was fueling the, the fear yesterday too with the German, the, the Chinese data on top of other countries that we see slowing. Undoubtedly, the, the global economy is slowing, undoubtedly. And Europe in particular is slowing really fast. And what we saw out of Germany, what you just mentioned, is pretty disturbing because Germany is the powerhouse economy, Germany is the predictable economy, it's a stable economy, and it's slowing down really fast. It's gone into contraction um, in the second quarter. So yes, the, the global economy is weakening. Yes, that's going to be a headwind for the U.S. economy. But it doesn't mean the U.S. economy goes into recession. I think we have to make that distinction that the U.S. economy is relatively closed. Now, if you're an open economy, small open economy like Singapore, They've just radically revised down their growth projections. They know what it's like to be very sensitive to the rest of the world. The U.S. economy, not markets, economy is less sensitive. The president yesterday was not blaming the tensions, the concerns caused by the trade war. He blamed the Federal Reserve for hiking rates in, in December and not cutting rates soon enough right now. We've got Jackson Hole next week. What do you expect Jay Powell to say if he doesn't decide to speak. One about 
recessionary risks or the potential for recessionary risks, but also about the economic outlook. Because when he mentioned mid-cycle adjustment, fear re-entered the market. He, he's got a fine balancing act to achieve here, and it's a tough one. Yeah, like you say, a very fine balancing act, and it's a really tough one. Um, I don't know what I would advise Chair Powell to do. The Fed is increasingly in a lose-lose situation. It's being held hostage by markets. It's under increasing political pressure. And whatever they do, they may end up causing problems. So, for example, if they succumb to the pressure coming from markets and the political side and cut interest rates aggressively, when the economy doesn't call for that, that will undermine their credibility. And credibility is critical for central bank. If alternatively, they resist the pressure coming from markets, they will disrupt markets and expose themselves to even greater political pressure. So it really is a lose-lose situation. And it reflects the fact that for too long, central banks have carried the bulk of the policy-making burden. Yeah, and it's going to be a continuing problem. I'm just not sure where it ends. In the short term, though, Mohammed, what's the bigger risk here? Is the, the bigger risk the ongoing noise surrounding trade tensions between the United States and the risk that we don't see a deal? Or is perhaps the bigger risk here that we talk ourselves into a recession, particularly as far as the United States and the United States consumer is concerned in particular? equally important risks and I'm glad yeah. I'm glad you raised them both because they're equally important and and we've got to keep that on the um, radar screen I think the bigger issue whether it's a trade talk whether it's central banks losing effectiveness whether it's it's the distorted markets is that we're getting closer to the point where if we don't get a comprehensive policy response the global economy will tip into recession um, and we the central banks can't save us anymore And I think that's really important to realize. In the meantime, markets are going to become more volatile because we don't have an anchor of solid fundamentals, nor do we have an anchor of confidence in central banks. So expect a lot of volatility in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, lost leadership. What should investors be doing, Mohammed, at this moment? So first I have to ask the question, how do I react in, in, this, in this volatility, because the worst thing that can happen to an investor is doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Um, you know, markets are still, U.S. markets in particular, are still up for the year. So if you cannot stomach this volatility and you think you'll end up doing something silly, this is the time to reduce risk. If you're looking to increase risk, don't go into the heavily trafficked segments of the market. Look for dislocated opportunities, emerging markets, have certain dislocated opportunities and look for places that are naturally hedged. And I think that's where the opportunity is. It's very opportunistic. It's not about just buying the market like it's been for the last few years. Yeah, you've got to be far more calculated. Mohammed al thank you so much for joining us on the show. Always great to have you on. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But after the break, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway reckons Amazon shares are still a buy. Speaking of buying, we'll have all the details next. Welcome back 
to first move. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway says it's raised its stake in Amazon. The investment company first disclosed in May that it had begun buying Amazon stock. And with the shares it's added in recent weeks, it now has a stake worth almost $1 billion. For more on this, Claire Sebastian is back with us. Claire, we're keeping you busy this morning. Talk us through this because it tells you, I think, how their relationship with tech companies is evolving within the company, but also another vote of confidence, arguably, in the U.S. consumer here as well as Amazon. Yeah, absolutely, Julia. It was a, there was a time when Buffett wasn't really that interested uh, in tech stocks, but he uh, you know, bought Apple a few years ago. He's been increasing his stake there. Uh, and now after initially uh, buying Amazon, although I think it was not him that did it, it was one of his associates that originally uh, did that investment back in May. He's now adding to his stake. Uh, and I think if you look at, at Amazon's stock, it does sort of make sense. The, uh, the stock is up 17% so far this year, but it's down about 13% from its record highs, and it's down about 17, 7% rather oh, from the middle of May. Uh, when Buffett originally well. uh, made that investment. So it might be that he sees this as a good time to, to pick up, uh, you know, not going to call it a bargain at $1,700 a share, but perhaps slightly cheaper. And, 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 and it's a vote of confidence in Amazon's investment cycle that we see it in, in, the, in the, at the moment. Its last earnings report was slightly mixed because they are spending so much money uh, on one-day delivery. Clearly, he's optimistic that is going to yield future growth. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? And particularly in light of Amazon's earnings as well and this muted reaction that we got. It's a vote of confidence, I feel like, at a very important point, one, in the cycle, two, given the sensitivity on the economy right now, but also for the big tech stocks that have provided leadership for so long here too. I think it's an important signal, perhaps. Yeah, important. And also, this comes at a, at a pretty difficult time for Berkshire Hathaway. Their own stock uh, is down about 4% this year. They've had real trouble with one of their most significant investments, which is Kraft Heinz. They've, had to, they've announced you know, billions of dollars in write-downs. They had to restate earnings from prior years. They delayed uh, their, their recent earnings report. That stock is down 41% this year. Buffett looking at losses on paper of, of hundreds of millions of dollars uh, there. So I think diversifying away uh, from, from some of that and moving into these higher growth companies does sort of make sense. Plus, he's, he's been been on the record in the past saying that he kind of missed the boat when it comes to Amazon, that he, he perhaps should have bought yes. earlier. And he, uh, you know, he called Jeff Bezos incredible. He said that the business uh, is a miracle. So, so clearly he's still standing by that. Yes, let someone else buy it. I think that's the, that's the argument here within the company. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us on that story. All right, let me give you a look at what we're seeing right now for U.S. markets. I promised you volatility at the start of the show, and that is exactly what we're seeing. Look at that. Right now, a pop higher. I think, again, I'll reiterate, volatility, choppiness today to be expected. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express, but for now, that's it for the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.